Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God add His blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The Reverend Arthur Hildersham, you may not have heard of him before, but he is a nonconformist Puritan minister of England. He said this, And as this will make us able to pray with comfort, so will this also make us able to hear and read and meditate in the word with cheerfulness and a good appetite. As newborn babes, said the Apostle. Desire the sincere milk of the word, if so be, that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This will make us keep Sabbaths, even whole Sabbaths, without wearisomeness. Ye shall keep every man my Sabbaths, saith the Lord. Why so? What may more us do, us to do this willingly and cheerfully? I am the Lord your God, saith he. In a word, this will make us walk cheerfully in every duty of obedience in every way of God, thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, saith David. Therefore have I walked in thy truth. All right, so let's remember that last week we spoke about tasting that the Lord is gracious. We spoke of that entrance into the Christian life. It is a tasting that the Lord is gracious and kind and benevolent, that he can be trusted, that he can be relied upon. We spoke of the woman and the Pharisee, you'll remember, who uh, at, at the home of the Pharisee was, was weeping and washing Christ's feet with her hair and her tears and anointing his feet with, with, uh, with oil and so on. She had a sense of her need and the Lord as her only remedy. She tasted and hungered and thirsted for nothing else. We looked at that kind of tasting that is not a gracious Tasting that leads to presumption. And we remember the warning of Hebrews chapter 6. And finally we saw that this tasting is supposed to kindle in us a hunger for more. Uh, As a chef will say, would you like a taste? And he would be very disappointed if after he gave you a taste, you went, that's it, no more for me. Right? So the Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good, and use that as an impetus to desire even more. And then finally, we introduced the topic last week of hard thoughts of God. I'd like to hone down on that this week. I know it says in your orders that, we're gonna, that, that we were going to talk about growing by the Word of God, but in my meditations and in my, uh, my study reading this week, uh, I thought it might be better to go down the road of thinking hard thoughts of God and how we ought not to do that, how we might be inoculated against doing that. We want to taste that the Lord is gracious. Remember that there are some. They come to an understanding of Christ, some kind of understanding. They taste, if you will. But they don't taste that graciousness. They don't taste that glory. They don't taste 
that goodness. Rather, it is a taste that puts them off. For some reason or another, maybe that tasting comes into, into uh, contrast, right? Maybe it comes into crosshairs with, or crossways with their own desires, you know? And so they taste, but they don't go forward. And the main reason that we don't do that is because we think hard thoughts of God. Well, the Puritans had much to say about that. I have, I don't remember how many instances of this. Let's see. Looks like seven of them. We may not get to all of them today. But there are some very interesting things to think about that the Bible presents to us about thinking hard thoughts of God as a hindrance to coming to Him. To coming to Him full of faith, full of joy. May I say that when Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, he did not, uh, in so saying, desire to pinch your affections, but to, if you will, lance them and let them flow. Open them up and give them their, their proper aim and end. So we started out, we just barely read from Matthew 25. Let's turn back there for a moment. Verse 14, or verses 14 through 30. Uh, We'll not take the time to read after uh, all of it. Matthew 25, there it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country. He called his own servants, delivered them his goods. And, you know, he delivered five and two and one talents to those servants of his. And finally, we came to that last servant. And he had hard thoughts of his master, didn't he? I knew that thou wert an austere man, reaping where thou sowest not. I didn't trust in thy mercy. I didn't trust in thy kindness. I tasted all right, but it wasn't a gracious tasting. And so, here's your talent back. You have what's yours. Whereas the others went out and made good on the gifts that they were given in confidence that their master would receive that goodness from them. He had no such confidence. He had hard thoughts of God and noticed that these hard thoughts completely arrested any spiritual growth in him. He made no motion toward his master, but everything in his mind was contrary to his master. So I'd like to maybe look at a a few other places for this general talking about hard thoughts of God and then seven specifics. Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 20 as well. Matthew chapter 20 verse 12 reads like this. This is that parable where Jesus uh, presents uh, this householder who goes out in the early morning And he hires laborers into his vineyard. And he agrees with those laborers for a penny a day, right? Now that doesn't sound like much money to us. But in that day, a penny was another name for a day's wage. We're going to pay you for a day. Uh, uh, You know, here you are. You know, uh, you're out uh, on the highway looking for someone to pick you up. You're a day laborer. I'll pick you up for the day and I'll give you a penny. I'll give you a day's wage for your labor. Well, then he goes out again and he gets some 
later on in the morning, then some at noonday, and then some maybe an hour, hour and a half before shift is over. You'll, you'll remember the, the story there in Matthew 20. And so we come to the end of the story, and everyone gets a penny, and then finally the, 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 the laborers come to the master who, uh, who were taken up the first part of the morning, early in the morning, and they labored all day long. And so they, they saw everybody else got a penny for a lot less work. And so they have gotten their expectations a little bit charged up, a little bit tuned up. And so here they come thinking that may, they may get even two pennies. Right? And the master gives them a penny. And they say, hey, what gives? We've labored all day, even in the heat of the sun, and we get the same as everybody else. And then notice what the householder says to them. He says to them, Is your eye evil because mine is good? They thought hard thoughts of that master rather than good thoughts of him. Rather than emphasizing, look how generous this man is, they thought to themselves, look how stingy he is. He didn't give us anything like what he should have according to our estimation because we bore the heat of the day and remember that the householder says, friend, I've done thee no wrong. We agreed for a penny and I gave you your penny. So very interesting. They thought hard thoughts of that master, didn't they? They thought hard thoughts of him. Luke chapter 15, verse 29 is the next one. Luke 15 So this is the the parable of the prodigal son. And notice that the, you know, because we've been through this in our reading several times, you know that Pastor Todd doesn't call this the parable of the prodigal son. He calls it the parable of the son that never left. Because that's the real story, isn't it? This son that never left thinks hard thoughts about his father. The prodigal son returns and he kills the fatted calf and, and, he, and he lays out a feast and he puts his, his arms and his, his, he buries his face in the son's neck and he puts on the best robe and the ring and the shoes and all of that stuff. And while they're celebrating the son that never left, well, he has hard thoughts of his father. He stays out and will not. He refuses to come into this party. And it's his own brother that has come back. And notice he says, he answering, verse 29, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends, but as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. Thou hast killed for him the fatted cow. He thinks evil of his father. And of course in the story we want to make sure we get the import of what Christ is saying. He thinks evil of his heavenly father. This is indicative of the Jews. And then uh, we'll turn over to Luke 19. Verse 20, 
Another came and said, Lord, here, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto him that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds, and so on. So, uh, a parallel story to, to the Matthew 25 story. <clears throat> and yet, what we have here also is a little bit more detail about the laying down and the taking up. Notice the hard thoughts that this man thought of the, of the master in the, in the parable here was that he required things that he didn't supply. You hear that? He required things that he didn't supply. And we'll get back to all of these as we work through these seven uh, ways of thinking hard thoughts about God. But let me say this. Let me just pull up for a moment and say this. There are those that live in this world that when you convince them from the scriptures that there is no other way to believe except that God indeed is sovereign over our salvation, then sometimes you'll hear people that have been convinced of that fact but still think hard thoughts of God. Well, I guess he just hasn't given that to me then. May I say that's exactly what we're talking about here in this parable. Oh, well, he's required of me something he didn't lay down in my heart in the first place. That is indeed, beloved, thinking hard and wicked thoughts about God. Our confession tells us that when we, when we lay out the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation and his predestinating grace, that we do so with much care. And a part of that care is, friend, when you hear of this, make a good use of it. Don't use it to turn back upon God and tell him how he is somehow unjust. Don't use it to think hard thoughts of God. Think of it in such a way as to magnify the grace and mercy of God. Be one of those that are tearing down the gates to get in to where blessing is found. Rather than those who remain aloof. You never gave me anything like the prodigal son's elder brother. All right, well, thinking hard thoughts of God then is a, is a sin. It's a wicked sin. It is not uncommon, though, among the professing church. We'll remember in Psalm 73, verses 8 through 13, Asaph himself was caught in this sin at one point in his career. What did he say? It's vain to serve God. He didn't say it in those words, but he said, I cleanse my hands in vain. I've washed myself in innocency for nothing. The wicked are happy as clams, to use a colloquialism. Right? Asaph fell into that. And later on, after his repentance, he says, you know, that's the, that's the talk of a beast. That's how a beast feels, only concerned about what feels good to him. Right? And then he talks about desiring God above all else. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. No longer thinking hard thoughts of God, but good 
and profitable thoughts of God. We also read about this in Isaiah 58, verse 1. Listen to what it says in there. Verse 3 especially. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Right? Oh, here we are. We're doing all these religious things for God. And what? He hasn't even taken notice. The Pharisees, the Jews of Christ's day will make this same claim. You'll remember what Jesus says. We've danced for you and you haven't clapped. You haven't appreciated anything we've done. It's all about you. Right? Well, you don't say it that explicitly, but that is the mindset. In Ezekiel 18, 1 and 2, verse 25, uh, verse 29, Ezekiel 33, 17 through 20. In these passages, we hear things like, oh, well, you know, the fathers have sinned, but it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. They're the ones that, eaten, that ate the sour grapes, but it's our teeth. God is visiting the sins of our fathers upon us. It's not right. He shouldn't be doing that. Right? So that's Ezekiel 18 and 33. And then finally in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Beloved, may words like this never be found upon our lips or in our minds. Listen to what it says here in verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Well, those are hard thoughts of God. There are those then, if, if we relate this back to Second uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, especially verse 3, there are those who have a taste. And they don't like what they taste. They don't taste that He's gracious. They taste that He's, what have we heard, austere. Serving Him is vain. He doesn't take notice. He doesn't appreciate. And so on and so forth. So, what I'd like to do is drill down to a little bit of detail now, not just these general passages, but talk about ways that turn our minds from thinking good thoughts of God to thinking hard thoughts of Him. And the first uh, instance that I'd like to speak to you about is a legal performance of duty. A legal performance of duty tends to hard thoughts of God and contrary to tasting that the Lord is gracious. We saw this in the prodigal son. We saw this in the older son is what I should say. We saw this in the parable of the, of the men laboring in the, in, in the vineyard. What did we hear from them? Look at all we've done, and this is all we get? 
or look at all we've done and you've never given us the gifts that we desired? Look at how we have served you, Lord, and look at the, at the pauper's return we have received. What is the difficulty with that? What is the difficulty with that thinking? Rather, than, I mean, in addition to it being rank, unbiblical thinking, aside from that, what is the, what is the mechanism? What is the thought process that leads someone to such thoughts? Number one, he has a high view of his own works, doesn't he? Too high a view of his own works. Lo, I have labored all these years and you never gave me a kid. What's the problem with that? Laboring all those years, number one, your labor was not indeed anything like it should have been. Or it may have been, it may have had the earmarks of faithfulness, but was it really the labor that was for me and not for you? Was it really sacrificial labor for me? The father might have responded. Well, it's obvious that it wasn't. It was all for him. And when he didn't get what he thought he was going to get, what happened? He thought hard thoughts of his father, didn't he? Secondly, when you labored as a son in your father's house and were loyal to him, you only did that which was your duty. There was no fatted calf promise attached to those duties. That was simply what it means to be born in your father's house. He had an overblown view of his own obedience, didn't he? And he had no view of what grace was. He thought hard thoughts of his father precisely because he was gracious to a sinner. And of course, he himself was not that kind of sinner. He didn't need that kind of mercy. He didn't need that kind of grace. Oh, of course, this son of yours, he needed that kind of grace, but not this son here. I have never been disloyal. Really? And so legal performances of your duties, beloved, will lead you to thinking hard thoughts of God. Why? Because you will see others that labor less than you do with the same reward. And you, like the men in the parable, will think you should have something more coming than them. This is the man on the street view, isn't it? Oh, the Lord only sends really wicked people to hell. You know, like Hitler and Stalin and folks like that. Paul Pot and Trump or whoever. Right? George Bush, back two or three presidencies ago. Only the really wicked people go to hell. The rest of us, we're all working for God, you know. And then suddenly... Reality sets in that they are afflicted and that they're cast out. They do not love the Lord. And even in hell, what do they do? They weep and they gnash their teeth against that God who they believe has treated them so unfairly. Legal righteousness, self-righteousness 
leads to thinking hard thoughts of God. The Pharisee thought this, didn't he? The Pharisee, if he knew what kind of woman that was. Certainly, I'm not that kind of person. Or we have the Pharisee and the publican, don't we, in that other parable. Right? God be merciful to me, the sinner. While the Pharisee has no sins to confess, no requests to make, he has no needs at all, then suddenly finding out what is the attitude of the Pharisees, this people that knoweth not the law are accursed, and so on. So a legal pursuit of righteousness leads to thinking hard thoughts of God because our standard will never be His. And we'll always find something to find fault with, whether it's, it's a downplaying of his receiving of our good works, or whether it's an overplaying of the greatness of his mercy and complaint about it. So that's the first. Beloved, let me ask you the question. Do you sometimes find yourselves feeling a bit superior over others? Feeling a bit like, well, of course they deserve that, but not me. This will lead you to thinking hard thoughts of God when it, when it falls out not according to your deserts. You'll be tempted like Asaph was, seeing the righteous, or as we read today, they are in their own fat they are enclosed. Their mouth speaks loftily. They have everything they need and they leave their substance to their babes. As we heard in Psalm 17. How can that be? How can that be in a just world? And we will begin questioning the judgment and justice of God. Why? Because we think more highly of our own works and selves than we ought to think. And we think less of God's mercy and grace than we should. And so legal righteousness, self-righteousness tends toward thinking hard thoughts of God. So we must then remember that the Hitlers of this world, although their sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others, that they are no more deserving of judgment than we are. No more deserving of judgment than we are. That's counterintuitive to the natural man. It's counterintuitive to self-righteousness. It's counterintuitive to Pharisaic thinking. But it is true. And once we begin to think in that way, we we will less and less and less think legally, we'll stop feeding that little Pharisee that lives with us, that hungry little guy, and we'll starve him out more and more, and we'll think less and less along those lines, and more and more upon the grace of God, and we will magnify him for his mercy rather than resenting it. Because God has been, you know, too merciful with those other folks. So that's number one. A legal righteousness tends toward This kind of thinking. If we have tasted though. That the Lord is gracious. Then his grace and his mercy. Comes to the fore of our service. And serving him becomes a pleasure. And we we cease from saying. Things like. Well we've danced in your presence. And you haven't clapped. 
They haven't responded in the way we thought. Rather, we love God and we love that He receives our persons and services in the Beloved. Number two, wrongly regarding the Lord's chastisements is a way to devolve in our thoughts toward hardness of God, hard hard thoughts of God. Wrongly regarding His chastisements. I think this is another temptation that we all face. This is the way of Cain. Remember what Cain said in Genesis 4.13? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Remember what Saul did when when, uh, the Lord said, the kingdom is taken away from you. Do you remember what he did? It was taken away from him in chastisement. What did he do? He gripped it even tighter. He clutched it even closer. What did Cain and Saul have in common? God is punishing me in a way that's unjust. Rather than hearing what? If the Lord takes the kingdom away from me, then that's what I need. If the Lord sends me out of Eden and from, the, from my family out east, and that with the stigma of being a murderer, what? Then that's what I need. Beloved, there is no chastisement that the Lord sends to his people except they need it. Except they must have it. Except that it will work for your salvation. Why else does the Lord chastise his people? It is not simply because he takes pleasure in the afflictions that he sends you. No, rather the prophet tells us That in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. The Lord knows how to identify with us in all of our afflictions and does. We have that promise in scripture. We also have the very actions of the Lord Jesus Christ who took to himself a true body, a reasonable soul, and suffered with a punishment greater than any of us will ever bear who believe in him for our sakes. No, he knows our frame that we are but dust. He knows what it is to afflict. So, he does send chastisement. But sometimes in, that, in those chastisements, we forget. Notice Psalm 77. Verse 8. Uh, let's talk. Let's let's begin in verse six. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth His promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His tender mercies? Sometimes when we are under difficult chastisements, we might tend to think so. Beloved, I can tell you from the scripture, without fear of contradiction, that every affliction you have ever undergone has been sent by God because we needed it. Because he would save us rather than curse us. Because he would use that chastisement as we read in Hebrews 12 
to work that holiness in us, in us without which no man shall see the Lord. Isn't that what the apostle tells us in Hebrews 12? What is the right response then when we are tempted to think thoughts that are here voiced in Psalm 77? Verse 10, And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Then he'll recount Egypt. The waters saw thee and fled. That is, they parted, right? So that thou madest a way in the sea for thy people Israel. Who are we to doubt God's mercy even in times of chastisement? His mercies are his love strokes upon his people. We remember um, we remember Job in this, don't we? How that in Job began his career as it's recorded in the book of Job with that wonderful kind of, of trusting and resting in the Lord. Job chapter 1 verses 20 and 22 or 20 through 22. How does it, how does it uh, give the case there? Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in all this. Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He didn't think hard thoughts of God. He thought good thoughts of God. How did he do that? How did he maintain that even in the midst of those great afflictions and chastisements? And may I say that if you read through chapter 1, you will, you will understand that Job has gone through in this chapter as it is described more than any of us ever have. The loss is withering to think about. Yet he charged not God foolishly. He did not have hard thoughts of God. He took the chastisement because he remembered what? Naked came I into this world. I have nothing. I deserve nothing. And yet I have the love of my heavenly father who is given and taken as he sees fit. If we will not maintain that kind of attitude under affliction and under chastisement, we will descend into hard thoughts of God. And sadly for Job, that was the case. For a large portion of the book, we see him vacillating back and forth between good and hard thoughts of God. But then we read the resolution of his case, don't we? In chapter 42, and we'll, we'll for the sake of time, simply shortcut to the end of the chapter or the end of the book. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Of course, that means me. I've done that. I've hidden counsel without knowledge. 
That is, I have mistaken God's movements toward the toward me in my own ignorance. That's what that phrase means. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. So what did he do? First he had hard thoughts of God, then he uttered hard words about God. Here I beseech thee and I will speak, I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have one more thing to say, Lord, verse 4. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. In other words, whenever you want, Lord, please speak. Speak and speak to me again and again. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and then 11 through 14, what do we hear in that passage? We hear that the Lord chastises his people for the sake of their holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Isaiah 49 gives us one more help in this. If we turn to Isaiah 49, you'll remember that Isaiah 49 is that wonderful passage that sort of, if you will, peels back the veil between a conversation and in eternity past between the Father and the Son. It's a sort of reportage, if you will. Jesus will say to the Father, I've labored in vain. The Father will say to Christ, do you think that it's a light thing for you to become my salvation to Israel? I have you slated to become the salvation to the ends of the earth. Don't think of my blessing as, as uh, you know, in any way shortened. My hand is not shortened. So that's verses 4 and 5. And then it takes us down, notice, to verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy on Zion. I'm sorry, on, on his afflicted. Then verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. All of these evils are, are befallen me. Certainly the Lord has forgotten. What does the Lord say? What is the next verse? Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste. The destroyers, Thy destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee, lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together, and come to thee, as I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on thee, as a bride doeth. And what this passage means, it's an answer to the, to the question that Christ asked earlier in the chapter. The Lord says, you're looking around you and you're seeing yourselves surrounded by enemies and you're wondering, has the Lord forsaken me? The Lord says, no, I haven't forsaken you. These are going to be your companions. You're going to clothe yourselves with them. You're going to bring in the forces of the Gentiles. You're not going to be thought of as a, as a barren house any longer. Can a woman forget her sucking child? She might. But I will never forget you, the Lord says. So when we are under chastisements, we must remember his love, his mercy, that he's acting as a father toward us. 
It is indeed, as the writer in Hebrews 12 will tell us, that those who are without chastisement do not inherit. They are illegitimate children. They have no inheritance. The Lord chastises those to whom he will give the inheritance. So sometimes under chastisements, the people of God are tempted to think hard thoughts of God. Let us not. Let us make a better use of such times as that. The third, doubting of the Lord's provision can think of hard thoughts. Doubting the Lord's provision. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Because we have this, um, we have this picture of our Lord Jesus Christ that is given to us when he is tempted by Satan. Do you remember the circumstances uh, recorded both in Matthew and Luke chapter 4? And so our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I believe that there is a redemptive historical teaching in that tempting of Christ, that Adam was the best uh, and brightest of God's creation. He was set in a garden. He was set in complete innocence with no constraint upon him to disobey the Lord or to sin. He had the best of circumstances. The animals came to him and served him. He was God's vice, gerent, vice president, if you will, over the entire world. Everything that God had created was given to Adam in subservience to him that he might bring it to the glory of God and present it to God. Fully formed, um, managed, taken care of, curated, if you will. Jesus was in a wilderness. He was in a wilderness without food, without companionship. Remember, Adam needed a companion. The Lord gave him a companion. Adam needed food. The Lord gave him food. Adam needed work to do. He gave him work. He gave him everything for his success. (coughs) Excuse me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it appeared, was deprived of everything. In the wilderness, not a garden. Without food. Fasting for 40 days. And I think that we're supposed to think of the first and the second Adam in these circumstances. And so then at the end of 40 days, the tempter comes to him and he says, make these stones bread. Both texts in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 are careful to tell us after the 40 days, not before, after the 40-day fast, he hungered. Interesting, isn't it? After which he hungered. And the tempter is right there ready that Jesus should step out of his role as the representative of God's people and act in his own behalf instead. Look, here you are without provision. You don't have any food. Why would someone in your why would someone of your position be without food? Why would someone of your position be without protection why would someone of your position 
be without a kingdom. You and I, we know who you are. Why should you be deprived? In times of deprivation, in times of loss, in times of, of, uh, of when the Lord's provision and care seems, seems to be uh, apart from us. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus answers with his word. Why? Because the first answer is the best. Beloved, the Lord, for his own sake, for his own, uh, for his own pursuits, may take away from you uh, his provision, his temporal provision. It seems that he will take away his care. It appears to us in that way. And that movement of walking by sight and not by faith will lead to hard thoughts of God. I don't have all the money I need. I don't have all the supply I need. It seems that God is, 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 has shorted me. Is that what Jesus said? When in... His, in the days of his flesh, he had nowhere to lay his head. Is that what he said in that most acute time when he was under the temptation of the tempter? No. No, Jesus said, I have all of the supply that I need. I have meat, he told his disciples, you know nothing of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And so even in times of deprivation, when the people of God might be tempted to think hard thoughts of God, as Asaph was, he's given much to the rich, as the psalmist was in Psalm 73, David, when he said, look at these rich folks, they leave their substance to their babes, but they're like that lion who looks down, their gaze is toward the earth. Beloved, if our gaze is toward the earth as well, we'll be tempted to think hard thoughts of God. But if our gaze is lifted up to God, we will be assured that he has not left off his care. As we read, we might double dip in Isaiah 49. Has the Lord forsaken me? Has he forgotten me? Has he left me to my affliction? Well, can a mother forget her sucking child? The Lord says, even if she would, I would never forget you. And what is he saying there? There's simply no illustration here that lives up to the care and concern that you are always in my sight and always in my care, even if it doesn't seem like it to you. Right? Well, let's go one more, and then we'll have to, we'll have to stop for the sake of time. Um, there are other times when we will doubt of the Lord's good and smiling countenance in obedience. We will think that his commands are the source of our grief. And so we'll think hard thoughts after God. This is 
this is a very interesting uh, take on what it means to serve the Lord, right? And so the, they said in Malachi chapter 3, verses 14 and following, it is vain to serve God. It's to no purpose that we've walked mournfully before God, keeping His commandments. Notice they've revealed their own heart against God's commandments, walked mournfully keeping them. Mm. How different is the attitude of the, of the prophet Jeremiah or the psalmist who both say that those commandments are the joy and rejoicing of our hearts, right? And so there are times then when we are, when we are obedient to the Lord and for that obedience we suffer. Persecution comes upon us for particular obedience and what do we think then? Is, can I just ask you, beloved, at such times as that, is all, all of, your, of your grief and ill will, is all of that geared toward those who would persecute, persecute you? Or have you reserved maybe a little bit of that for your heavenly Father and His providence? Even in our persecutions, it is the Lord who moves those persecutors against us. We heard that again in the psalm today. Men who are thy hand, O Lord. Yet, just like in Acts chapter 2, the Lord says, or Peter says to those who crucified Christ, he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, yet ye by wicked hands have taken and slain. Remember that? The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God gets all the glory. And the wicked actors, they receive all the shame. Do you consider it, beloved? Let me ask you, let me approach it from another angle. Do you consider the sufferings that we do in behalf of Jesus Christ and because of our profession of faith in Him, a privilege. Because this is the example that we have in Scripture. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, long about verse 41. This is the disciples, the apostles, after they had been beaten and commanded that they should not preach in the name of Christ anymore. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple... And in every house, they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Notice, there is not one hard thought of God there and His providence. They have reserved all of their ill will toward their persecutors, and yet not so much ill will that they would refuse to speak gospel truth to them when called upon. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 1.
Well, it's 2 Thessalonians. Thank you. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith, in all your persecutions and tribulations which, uh, that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and so on. Notice the Thessalonians suffered much. We'll remember, won't we, that the Jews in Thessalonica chased Paul out of town, followed him down into Berea, and thought to stir up trouble there. And that the Thessalonians, uh, as they came out of the synagogue and established a Christian church there, seeing that Christ was rejected in the synagogue, they suffered much at the hands of their brethren. Chapter 2 of First Thessalonians tells us that. What does Paul say about that? That it is a righteous, it is a token of the righteous judgment of God that they suffer for righteousness' sake. That they have become an example to others and that their faith grows exceedingly and that they have charity and love one toward another. All of these things are a result of the chastisements and persecution that the Lord has brought upon them. They didn't think hard thoughts of God. Sometimes under chastisements, we are tempted to think hard thoughts of God. They did not, and instead they flourished under that treatment. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Literally, what Peter says there is this is grace with God. Or something to thank God for. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Notice what the right response to persecution is. Committing ourselves to God. Righteously. Not thinking hard thoughts, but putting ourselves in our own mindset in God's safekeeping. Right? We've used this illustration before. Let's use it once again. And I'm, boy, I guess I got to close with this. You'll remember when there was a time in ancient Israel when Joshua and the elders, they did not consult the Lord and they took the Gibeonites into their care. Right? 
And the Gibeonites were then subsequently attacked by the other tribes, the other Canaanite tribes. And what did they do? They committed themselves to the care of Joshua and the Israelites. This is what Peter is talking about here. They committed their safekeeping to the Israelites. They didn't say, look at this, you can't protect us after all. Why did we ever enter into this, this arrangement with you? Or maybe they care about others that they have ahead of us. No, they sent to Joshua and Israel and they came immediately to protect those that they had committed to keep. This is how the Lord will avenge us speedily. Speedily, he says. Right? And we'll use that illustration, Lord willing, next week. Let's, let's close there then. These, these four things, these, these four temptations to think Hard thoughts of God. The first is self-righteousness. The second is wrongly regarding his chastisements. The third is doubting the Lord's provision in times of loss and deprivation. And the fourth is doubting the Lord's good and smiling countenance when we obey him and we are persecuted instead of what we expected. Right? All right. Well, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee O Lord, we ask that Thou wouldst help us to taste and taste graciously and that the tasting of Thee that we have would not lead us to hard thoughts of Thee. Lord, help us to avoid these temptations and pitfalls to thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, more deservingly of ourselves than we ought to think, thinking less of others than we ought to think, downplaying Thy mercy to ourselves and overblowing it toward others as if they were undeserving and we ourselves deserving. Lord, that we would not be weary in well-doing, but that we would in due time reap if we faint not, that thou wouldst help us, Lord, even when we are buffeted for doing well, that we would not think hard of thee. Oh, Lord, we pray that in times of deprivation and loss, Lord, we pray especially at those times that we would not be tempted to think ill of thee or to wonder if thou dost indeed care for us after all. And especially in times of chastisement, Lord, we pray that we might remember that we are always chastened less than our sins deserve and that thou dost reserve indeed thy, uh, thy vindictive judgments for those who are not thine own. And that every stroke of thine toward us is a stroke of love. O Lord, help us to think good thoughts of thee. In all of these temporal difficulties and more. That we might be a people that think rightly. That think of thy mercy. That even when it is difficult for us to find a way through a temporal difficulty. That we do not take the way of thinking hard thoughts of thee. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.